Anytime you begin talking about family and marriage and parenthood, it's like a, it's like a minefield <laughs> that you have to navigate. I'm very aware of that. Um, and so in the limited time that we have, there are a lot of caveats that I just don't have the time to make, but they're there, okay? And so as we talk about this, uh, we're going to be talking in very absolute terms. We're going to be looking at the big picture. We're going to be looking at God's ideal and God's design, fully recognizing that we live in a sinful and fallen world, that we're broken people, and we're in need of the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Okay? Can we agree on that? Okay. All right. So with that said, let me also say that I am not just going to stand up here and give you my opinion on things. Um, I have spent weeks and weeks praying about this message um, and, and months beyond that reading and studying everything I could get my hands on, books, commentaries, uh, fantastic articles written by much smarter people than me, studies, lots of things in preparation for this sermon that I knew was coming down the road. And especially the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time looking over some things. So I am trying to bring to you a, a well-researched, uh, message with, with a lot of input from a lot of fantastic sources, uh, and I'm going to try to give you a list of some of those next week. Uh, one of them is the book Counterculture, which we're going to do a cross-current series with beginning August the 9th. And in that, author David Platt observes, Our understanding of marriage is built upon our understanding of sexuality. Now that understanding has been questioned and deconstructed by our culture in unimaginable ways just a handful of years ago. John Popper recently said, Before now, as far as we know, no society in the history of the world has ever defined marriage as being between two people of the same sex. And he goes on to say, It is a mind-boggling innovation with no precedent to guide us. I think we can all agree with that. Marriage equality is the term that we've heard. It's the term that's been um, sort of put on this seismic shift that our culture has experienced. Ironically, equality is a, is a distinctly Christian notion. It, it's Christianity that brought this idea of equality into our, our collective conscious as a culture. But in our society today, equality has come to mean identical or all-inclusive. And that's simply not true to the definition of the word equality. So given this new understanding of marriage even, it still is exclusive because by definition, marriage is exclusive. Even as the court has redefined marriage, it still maintained that marriage is between two people. It still maintains that marriage is an exclusive relationship. And I would say most of those who are in favor of same-sex marriage would agree that it needs to be restricted to two people, that, that polygamous relationships or polyamorous relationships, there's a new word for you uh, that, that Spellcheck does not recognize, but, but it's there, meaning you know all sorts of multiples of people entering into a marriage relationship. I think most people would agree that that just doesn't need to happen. And certainly we all agree that marriage should exclude underage and incestuous couples. So marriage is exclusive, even in this new reality in which we live. The point is made by Sean McDowell and John Stone Street in their book, Same Sex Marriage. If any and every type of relationship should be called marriage, it's no longer a helpful term. 
Marriage can't mean everything or else marriage means nothing. So we know what our culture and what our courts say marriage means. But let's look this morning at what God says about the institution He created. Because when you start trying to determine the purpose and best usage of a thing, it's often helpful to go to the user manual or even if you can, back to the blueprints, the original design of a thing. And since we live in a sinful, fallen world, the only way we can confirm what is true about marriage is to consider God's created intent for marriage. In our New Testament passage this morning, Jesus was confronted about His views on marriage. Now, you've probably heard it said by people that, well, Jesus doesn't say anything about same-sex marriage. And that's true. Jesus is confronted about divorce. But in that context, He gives us His view of marriage. And in His answer, Jesus twice refers to how marriage was in the beginning. Jesus affirms that the Genesis account shows us God's created intent for marriage. So turn with me if you will, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the opening verses of Genesis, we find the earth formless and empty. And God begins to form and fill the earth. First, God fills the empty darkness with light, and then He forms that light. He gives it shape by separating it from darkness. He fills the world with stars and land and sky and creatures, and then He shapes those things, separating day from night, establishing seasons and shorelines and placing plants and animals into distinct kinds. There's a rhythm to creation. And we also see a rhythm that says, let there be, it was so, and it was good. We see that again and again. Let there be, it was so, and it was good. And this rhythm is interrupted in Genesis 1.26 when God doesn't say, let there be. Instead, He says, let us make. Let us make. Look at Genesis 1 beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created in his own, man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then drop down to verse 31. God saw all that He had made and it was very good. And we've already read two, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 through 25, which gives us sort of the, the, the up-close. Genesis 1 gives us the big picture, kind of the, the cosmic look at creation. But then we get into Genesis 2, and we see a little bit more of the detail of how God made man and how He made them male and female. And I won't read that again. Uh, Drew did a great job of... or, of, uh, or Jay did a great job of reading... No? Who read that one? Jay read that one, didn't he? Yes, right, Jay read that one. He did a very good job, so I won't read that again. But in these passages, we discover three essential characteristics of marriage as designed by God. Three essential characteristics. And the first one is oneness. Oneness. Marriage is two people becoming one in every possible way. 
See, only the woman was capable of becoming one flesh with the man. God observed it was not good for man to be alone because alone man was incapable of accomplishing God's purpose for him. See, being made in God's image, and we see that right from the very beginning here in, in Genesis 1:26 and 27, God creates mankind in His image. Because of that, we see that all human beings possess an inherent worth and dignity. I want you to say that again. All human beings possess an inherent worth and dignity. Okay? That's, that's an important consideration that we have to remember. doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. doesn't matter what you believe. doesn't matter what your, your politics are. Every human being is created with an inherent dignity and worth. Nothing else in heaven or on earth is made in God's image. Not even the angels can claim to be like God the way man and woman can. Being made in God's image means that we are like God, but we are also not like God. He is infinite. We are finite. His knowledge is limitless. Our knowledge is limited. He is divine and we are human. He is spirit. We are enfleshed. But we do share with God the ability to reason, to love, to speak, to make moral decisions, and most importantly, we can relate to God in a way no other creature can. In a similar way, when God creates woman out of man, He makes her equal to man. They are equal in dignity, in worth, and in value. They are co-creators. They are co-stewards of God's good world. They equally bear the image of God, but God also makes them distinct from one another. They're equal, but they're different. From the beginning, God's plan and design for the, for the universe is pictured in this first marriage, this first human couple, and that plan is equality with variety. It's unity in diversity. And we'll talk about this more next week, but that's a picture of the Trinity. In the Trinity, in God's nature Himself, is variety with equality. Diversity in unity. And God has woven that into the fabric of creation, and that's reflected in marriage. David Platt explains, equal dignity does not eliminate distinction. God creates man and woman to cherish their shared equality while complementing their various differences. And I don't think we have to go too far to, to see how men and women are different, right? I mean, we're just you know, think about home. Think about the workplace. We like different things. We approach problems in different ways. We, we express emotions differently. We like to go see different kinds of movies. I mean, for me, the more explosions in a movie, the better. Julia could care less. She likes, you know, some of the more sappy romantic stuff. I mean, for her, she wants to watch Downton Abbey. For me, I want to watch Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I mean, so men and women are different. And marriage is a powerful and public uniting of these two essentially equal yet distinct individuals into one. Through marriage, the couple is treated as a single unit, socially and legally. Family and friends, think of them together. And there are domestic and financial and sexual and familial implications to their oneness. 
And there are benefits and there are responsibilities. But marriage is a relationship that's distinct from all others. I mean, other types of couples who share life together are not considered a single entity the way a married couple are. Take, for example, two college roommates who after graduation just continue to be roommates together. Or or two elderly widows who decide to, to for safety and, and, and for a financial advantage, they decide to move together and, and to live in one house and to pull their resources to cut to cut costs. Or consider the romantically involved cohabitating couple. None of these are marriages. So neither proximity nor depth of affection nor a sincere commitment to love each other is enough to make a relationship a marriage. And somehow throughout history and across cultures, the oneness of the marital union is recognizable as different from all others. The couple is one in mind, body, and purpose. And that oneness is both exclusive and it's public. Neither person will be one in this way with anyone else so long as their marriage lasts. And everybody knows it. Oneness. A second essential characteristic is procreation. Marriage is oriented toward procreation. God gives the man created in his image a job to do. And notice it's the very same job God was doing in creation. Remember, I said that God in creation is filling the earth and forming it. He fills the earth with things and then he forms them. He names them. He categorizes them. He separates them out. And God gives humanity that same job description. Look in 128. He tells them to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. Now that word subdue, some translations say dominate, that's not a very good translation. It's not that we just sort of can come out here and just, just destroy everything and just you know, take whatever we want and not have to care for creation. That's not what that means. That word carries with it this idea of forming the earth. Of, of categorizing and naming and bringing order and continuing to bring out the creative potential of the world. So our job as image bearers is to do God's job of filling the earth and forming it. So when we think back to the importance and value of this one flesh, this oneness of marriage, we've already mentioned that it reflects God's design of equality with, diverse, with variety, of unity and diversity... We've already said that in marriage, men and women are able to uniquely cherish our equality while also complementing our differences. But there's also a practical purpose to this oneness that comes in marriage, and that is to fill and form the earth. Now, naturally, that's a job that's too big for Adam to do by himself, isn't it? And in 2.18, for the first time, God declares something as being not good. He says it is not good for the man to be alone. Man needs help. And neither bird nor beast are up to the task. So God makes man a suitable helper. And man and woman become one flesh, which is the model for all subsequent one flesh unions. Now, if you looked in this story and tried to find anywhere that says that Adam was lonely and in need of companionship, you'll come up empty doesn't say that. Rather, God says that man was alone and in need of a helper. Genesis 2.20 specifically says that the animals were not suitable helpers. And why not? 
Well, you know, animals are great at forming things. You can take an ox, you can put a plow behind it, and it can plow up the ground. Animals can be great helpers for forming things, but the animals could not help Adam to fill the earth with other image bearers of God. I love the beauty of this scene where God brings all these animals to Adam and one by one helping him realize that he needs someone equal to himself. Someone made out of the same stuff he's made out of, possessing a nature that's similar to his yet different from him. Someone who could help him do the things he could not do by himself. And only the man and the woman together could procreate and produce other fillers and formers who could procreate and produce other fillers and formers. So one of the main roles that we fulfill, one of the main ways we fulfill our role as image bearers, bearing the image of our Creator, is when we create more people. When we create more fillers and formers of the earth. So I think you could say that the original biblical purpose that we see here in Genesis for marriage is to equip people to populate and cultivate God's creation. Now, that's not to say that companionship isn't a great benefit or even a purpose for marriage. It is. And I love my wife. She's my best friend. And I'm glad I get to spend life together with her. We are companions throughout life, but that's not the only purpose for marriage. I mean, other relationships can provide companionship too. When I want to go see a a Marvel superhero movie, sometimes it's not Julia that goes with me. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a buddy of mine who goes with me. So other relationships can provide companionship But only marriage can make a man and a woman one flesh in every sense of the word, emotionally and physically, in body and in spirit, in purpose. Therefore, husbands and wives are more than companions. They are helpers. Together they produce, protect, and preserve future generations of image bearers who will continue the human task of filling and forming God's world. Now, you may say, well, David, people don't have to be married to have children. And that's true. They don't. But marriage is the best relationship for protecting and preserving future generations. I would say that children deserve a mother and a father. Marriage, when properly practiced, brings security and stability to children that no other relationship can bring. Two men adopting children cannot provide that child motherhood. Two women adopting a child cannot provide that child fatherhood. You know, we're different, right? We already established that. Men and women are different. And there are are things that I can bring to, to my daughter as her dad that her mother could never bring to her. And vice versa. And so God created the world from the beginning so that children would be formed spiritually, emotionally, and socially by a mother and a father. Now, in recognizing same-sex marriages, the Supreme Court has communicated a chilling social statement. And I don't think this is a stretch. That motherhood and fatherhood are both negligible in the public good of raising children. Now, now think about this. Unfortunately, tragedies happen and not all children can be raised with with both a mom and a dad. I acknowledge that. And and I think we would all acknowledge that's not best. That's not the ideal. But what we have done as a culture in recognizing same-sex marriage is we have taken action to normalize that tragic situation. We have set up a system by which some children are guaranteed 
not to have a mother or a father. It's a new reality in which we have a culture that said that is no longer the ideal, that a child is raised by mom and dad. Just ask yourself this, would our society be better or worse if the vast majority of children were raised by their moms and dads in a committed marriage relationship? I think we'd have to agree the world would be a better place. And again, that's not to say that every mom and dad are good moms and dads. But, you know, the old saying goes, don't let a bad apple spoil the bunch, right? We, we can't let those exceptions where, where people fail in marriages or they fail as parents, we can't let that say, well, the whole institution is worthless. If we did that, then, then why are we sitting here in a church? Because no church is perfect, right? McDowell and Stone Street say this about the biblical blueprint for marriage. Two become one, not just for happiness or emotional fulfillment, but also for a good that is greater than themselves. In other words, your marriage is not just about you, but about future generations and about a healthy and stable society. And even if you're not married, you benefit from the social structure that marriage produces. Even if you can't have children or don't want to have children, your marriage still contributes to that institution which is designed and must be maintained for the best interests of children and society as a whole. David Platt wonderfully sums up the beauty of God's design for man and woman in marriage like this. Two dignified people, uniquely designed to complement each other. A male and a female, fashioned by God to form one flesh a physical bond between two bodies where the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference. That's beautiful. And because of the serious implications of this physical union, marriage also functions to mark two people as sexual partners and it makes them publicly responsible for the sexual behavior of each other. I mean, sex, though done in private, can have very public consequences, can it not? Either positive or negative, either healthy or unhealthy. But once married, the community knows that these two people are accountable to each other for their sexual behavior. And they're also accountable to each other for any children that they produce together. And the the community knows this. And that way, marriage, again, it's a public thing. It's not just about private. It's not just what happens in the bedroom. It's what happens in all spheres of society. And the reason that the state has any vested interest in recognizing or promoting marriage is to increase the likelihood that when a baby is born, it will have both father and mother nearby to care for it and to raise it into adulthood so it can be a functioning member of society. One quote I read said, The government's not a sucker for adult romance. That's not why the government's involved in marriage. It's involved in marriage because the government knows that, that, that a, a man and a wife, a mother and a father, together raising their children is what's best for the child and it's what's best for society. And numerous studies support the obvious truth that children do much better when raised by their mom and their dad. On average, they have advantage in literacy, graduation rates, emotional well-being, and in sexual development. One author states it kind of bluntly, if you'll pardon me here. She says, sex makes babies. Society needs babies. Babies deserve mothers and fathers. It's pretty simply put. 
Even President Obama recognized the importance of children having both a mother and a father when he said this, We can do everything possible to provide good jobs and good schools and safe streets for our kids, but it will never be enough to fully make up the difference. That is why we need fathers to step up to realize that their job does not end with conception, that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, but the courage to raise one. And I would add that children also need fathers who are committed to their mothers. I'm sure you've heard it said that one of the best things a man can do for his children is to love their mother. And part of that is the third essential characteristic of marriage, permanence. Marriage comes with an expectation of permanence. That's why the vows say, till death do us part, right? Everyone who's married enters into that with an expectation that they're going to spend their lives together. And every marriage should strive to live up to those vows. It's a tragedy when they don't. But a strong marriage culture brings stability to our families and to the entire community. And the expectation that marriage is permanent commits adults to their families and to their family's future. It curbs the urge for immediate gratification. It encourages adults to think about others. And it teaches children the value of commitment. That is why God hates divorce. Jesus himself tagged to the end of the Genesis account in Matthew 19.6. He said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's not in Genesis Jesus added that. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, we read Malachi a lot when we talk about tithes and offerings, but did you know it talks about marriage and divorce? In Malachi 2, verse 13, it says, Another thing you do... So God's kind of given Israel this litany, or, or Judah this litany of things that they're doing. He says, You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands, and you ask why. So in other words, they feel that God's Spirit has left the building. And they weep and they will and they bring their offerings. They feel like God's not listening, God's not present. They need revival. And they're asking, why, Lord? And here's what he says. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. God says that He hates divorce as much as He hates violence. And why is that? Because God has made them one in flesh and in spirit, and in so doing, they're His. That marriage belongs to God. And notice why God makes them one. So they can produce godly children who will know, love, and serve Him. Again, we see that procreative element of marriage right here in Malachi. We see that God takes marriage seriously. God says that the, that the wife is the man's partner. And when a man divorces his wife, he breaks faith with her. He breaks his marriage covenant. And God is a covenantal God. And He's a God who never breaks His covenant with people. And He expects the same thing of us. He expects us to be faithful to our promises. So then why does God allow for divorce in the Old Testament law? And that's the question the Pharisees bring to Jesus. And Jesus explains to the Pharisees that God allowed it because our hearts are hard. 
Because He knows that we're sinful. But Jesus says, it was not this way from the beginning. It was not this way from the beginning. It's not God's ideal. It's not the way God made things to work. Divorce is an interruption. It was not a part of God's plan, but it's, it's the reality that we live with today. And then Jesus goes on, and, and, he, and in other places He gives additional instructions that are meant to illustrate the great damage that divorce does to people, especially to the women. You have to remember that when Jesus is talking about divorce, He's talking to a culture in which women had no rights, they couldn't own property, they couldn't work, they couldn't just go out and, go out and find another man. They were oftentimes left to either depend on a family member or resort to prostitution. So that's why Jesus comes down so harsh about divorce. He's doing it to protect the women. He's doing it to show that God's heart is for marriage. God is pro-marriage. And God wants marriages to work, and He wants them to last. For us today, the best marriage laws protect marriage for what it is and for the good it brings to the community. Because marriage laws in the state recognizing and promoting marriages, it helps to make that one flesh union real. It requires the state and other entities to, to act as if your marriage really exists, to treat you as one. So it all goes back to that oneness. Now I want to leave us real quick with kind of three footnotes, three uh, little considerations here. One is that God created marriage for all people, not just Christians. So the idea that we can just, you know, let, let society do, do what it wants to do, we're just going to recognize marriage the way we want to recognize it in the church, we'll just keep it in, in the church, sort of an internal thing. But we believe that God made marriage for all people. In Matthew 19, Jesus twice refers to how it was in the beginning. In, in the beginning, marriage is almost as old as the sun, moon, and stars. It, God created it in chapter 1 of Genesis. The church did not create marriage, God did. Churches can recognize that marriage is a gift of God to His image bearers. The state didn't create marriage. God did. But states can recognize and can promote and protect marriages. Secondly, though sin has distorted marriage, it has not negated its design or its purpose. Adam and Eve sinned. Have you sinned? Have you sinned? Who in here has not sinned? All right, good. We're all honest. We're all sinners. Adam and Eve failed at marriage. Have you failed at marriage? I have. I'm not the perfect husband. I make mistakes all the time. Julia is one of the most patient and forgiving people I know. None of us are perfect. None of our marriages are perfect. We have to acknowledge that and remember that. But when we fail at marriage, or even when marriage fails... And even though that can become a great source of insecurity and instability, we have to remember that broken and failed marriages are not the fault of marriage itself. It's not that we tried marriage and it didn't work. It's that we've not tried marriage the right way. In fact, the negative weight that's left by failed marriages highlights the importance of healthy marriages to our society. But even though it's been tainted by sin, and even though we, we have to function as, as married couples in today's world, this fallen, sinful world, the amazing, miraculous thing is that marriage, as broken as it is, has actually played a vital role in restraining evil in society. Because marriage functions as a reminder to men and women of their responsibility as spouses and parents. Marriage helps to bring order to our society. 
And third, beyond marriage's procreative purpose lies a redemptive purpose. We're going to look at this more in depth next week, but in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us a gospel perspective on marriage. That marriage is supposed to offer the world a picture of the love and faithfulness of Christ and His church. McDowell and Stone Street write this beautifully about this. They say, Marriage does not lose its importance in the New Testament. Rather, it's clarified. As created, marriage enabled male and female to reflect God's image together. As redeemed, marriage reflects Christ's love for the church. As created... Marriage enabled God's image bearers to spread His rule over the earth. As redeemed, marriage disciples both current and future generations to spread the gospel over all the earth. As created, marriage is the foundation of social order. As redeemed, marriage commits us to restrain our passions and live for the good of others. Now, all that is not to say that single people or widows or widowers can't contribute in significant ways to God's mission. They can. And though everyone has not been called to marry, everyone has had parents. And because the good that marriage brings to society, everyone in society benefits from marriage. Because strong marriages strengthen the character of future generations. And everyone, whether married or single, whether you have children or you don't, Everyone benefits. You know, the speed at which same-sex marriage went from unthinkable to unquestioned is unparalleled in modern times. And I think based on what we've discovered this morning, it's clear that the biblical definition, design, and purpose of marriage cannot apply to same-sex relationships. Again, John Popper writes, the point here is not only that so-called same-sex marriage shouldn't exist, but that it doesn't and it can't. Those who believe that God has spoken to us faithfully in the Bible should not concede that the committed lifelong partnership and sexual relations of two men or two women is marriage. It isn't. God has created and defined marriage. And what He has joined together in that creation and that definition cannot be separated and still be called marriage in God's eyes. Yet here we stand. And in light of the Supreme Court decision, we now have to ask ourselves some questions like, how can we best respond to this new cultural and legal reality? What does it look like for Christians to be faithful to the gospel in a society that has replaced the long-held and foundational definitions of marriage and sexuality? See, we can't just come down as being against same-sex marriage. We must also be for the hope that Christ offers the world. And next Sunday, we're going to look more specifically at same-sex marriage and at at some of the the points that people who support it make. And we're going to look at how the gospel calls us to offer a counter-cultural vision of marriage to the world. Along those lines, I want to leave us with two challenges. The first is that marriage is a high calling. Marriage is a high calling. And it isn't something that everyone is called to. Just as everyone is not called to parenthood. In fact, both Jesus and Paul specifically talk about how singleness is also a high calling. And that God calls some people to be single for a purpose. Secondly, marriage is a holy commitment. Marriage is a holy commitment. It's a covenant. And God has high expectations for husbands and wives. 
You know the only way that we can live up to those commitments and God's expectations is through His Spirit at work in us. Because by myself, I can't do it. By myself, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth time and time again. By myself, I'm going to fail as a husband and as a father. But you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for a God of mercy and grace. I'm thankful that we all have sinned and fall short of God's ideal for us as people, as parents, as spouses. I'm thankful that God, that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. He understands. And He is offering us grace and mercy. There's no unpardonable sexual sin. There isn't. Any sexual sin can be forgiven. It can be cleansed. Any broken marriage, any, any, any relationship between parent and child that is strained can experience healing and a second chance. God does help divorced people to move on with their lives in meaningful and powerful ways. Past mistakes do not mark us for life, do they? We have a God of grace and mercy. And we have a God whose Spirit empowers us to be loving and joyful and patient and kind, to be people who are people of self-control and good and gentle. His fruit bears forth in our lives as mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends and spouses. God helps us to be who He would have us to be. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't know that power. You can't know the fruit of that Spirit bearing out in your relationships. And maybe this morning you realize that you need, first and foremost, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says that He is the bridegroom and we the church are the bride. And Jesus stands down here at this altar ready for you to come and to say, I do to Him. To come and put your life in His hand so that He can forgive you and cleanse you and rebirth you into a new person so that the former things will pass away and all things will become new. Today you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I invite you to come and I will help you do that today. Maybe today God has spoken to your heart. You've been worshiping here for a while and you, and you think, you know what, I want to be a part of this church family. I want to come and, and, and unite with this church and, and, and be one in purpose with them. Today you can do that this morning. Or maybe God has touched your heart as He has touched mine this morning and all this past week. Maybe you just want to come and pray and say, God, forgive me for how I have failed in my relationships, whatever relationships those may be, and help me to be the kind of person you would have me to be. Whatever God has laid on your heart, you come and you respond today. Would you stand and sing? This may be a first. We have five minutes (laughs) of radio time to kill. You know, I hope, I pray, I believe that everything I've said is biblical and it's from the Word of God. And I think if I preached this sermon even just five or six years ago, you all would have thought, David, this is unnecessary. You know, we know this, and why do you have to say this? But we have been now given lenses, cultural lenses that that filter and that color these things that we hear. And, and, And there may even been some, even as I was preparing this, there were some things that I looked at, I thought, man, that just, I even, in a way, kind of feel funny because this is being just so ingrained into us from our culture. This is, these statements are now so countercultural. 
Uh, whereas for 2,000 years they were the mainstay of, of Christian and Western civilization. But I, I believe everything I've said here has, has been biblical. And, and I told you I had some caveats. And since I have just a couple of minutes, I want to share a few of those. And that is, and this is a big one, God loves you. God loves everyone. God loves the same-sex couple. God loves people who struggle with same-sex attraction. You were made in God's image. You have infinite worth and value and dignity. God loves the child born out of wedlock. God loves the single mother. God loves the divorced couple. God loves everyone. This is not about love. This is not about worth. This is not about value. This is about us trying to live the way that God created and commands us to live and recognizing that we live in a world that has failed to do that and we failed to do that. I failed to do that. And I need the mercy and the grace of God. We all need the mercy and the grace of God. And I'm thankful that, that God blesses us and uses us despite that. I'm thankful that God leads couples to adopt children so that they can be raised with a mom and a dad. What, what a gift, what a blessing, what a reflection of God because are we not God's adopted children? So I hope that in this message you don't hear hate or intolerance or, or discrimination. I hope you hear what has been the traditional view, the biblical view, until just the past couple of years. And I hope you hear that God is for you, He is for your family, he is for your marriage. He is for your children. He is for your parents. And He has the best that He wants to give you if we will but take it and receive it and live it. Now would you stand for His benediction? Next week, we will look more at the countercultural view of marriage and how we as Christians can can live out, whether we're married or single, how we can live out the gospel for our culture around us when it comes to ideas of marriage and sexuality. And then on the next Sunday, the end of this little three-part series, we're going to actually go through and look at the six places in which the Bible talks about homosexuality. And we're going to see what does the Bible really say about homosexuality and how can we as believers and Christians respond to those individuals who struggle with that. This is our benediction today from the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said,